Let's open our book, uh, our Bibles rather, to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Navigate on your device if you'd like. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 30. If you're visiting, have no fear, we can do that. The topic, although Moses complains about having what he calls uncircumcised lips, God makes it clear he's going to use him to deliver his message to Pharaoh. The title of our message, He's Got Lips, God Knows How to Use Them. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we gather together, we're anxious to have you be here as our teacher. Jesus, you promised that you would give the Holy Spirit. You did that on the day of Pentecost. He indwells us. He overflows us. Uh, he's present here in this place, Lord, by your promise. And you said he would be our teacher. In fact, you said we didn't really need human teachers as much as we needed him. And so I pray that as we go through your word and comment on it, Lord, your spirit would indeed be our teacher. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Bruce Willis might be the big screen's most reluctant hero. In Unbreakable, as David Dunn, he wanted to be left alone. But after he was the sole survivor of a catastrophe while sustaining no injuries, he had to accept the fact that he could very well be destined to be a superhero. In Die Hard, as John McClane, all he wanted was a nice Christmas with his family, but Hans Gruber had other plans. Gruber takes Nakatomi Plaza hostage, just happens to be where McClane's wife is having her office Christmas party. Five films later, he's still stepping up, albeit always reluctantly. Now, there are quite a few reluctant heroes in the Bible. Jeremiah and Gideon would be on that list. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I'm just a youth. Gideon complained, Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Moses would be top five for sure, if not the number one reluctant hero of the Bible. We saw him offer excuse after excuse when Jesus was speaking to him from the burning bush. Now again in chapter six, after his initial confrontation with Pharaoh, he tries to bail again. Verse 12 says, Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And then in verse 30, but Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? Both Moses and the Israelites had been pressing upon God to stop waiting and finally do something about their situation. But when God began to act decisively, they did not want to be the heroes and heroines that he chose. Waiting for the Lord, it's so hard. But when he acts, do we ever withdraw as so many of the Bible's reluctant heroes seem to do? I'll organize my comments on chapter 6 around two questions. Number one. Do you find it hard when God asks you to wait? And number two, do you find it odd that you ask God to wait? Let's take a look at waiting beginning in verse 1. Now, Jerry Seinfeld has a bit where he talks about waiting in the doctor's office. You spend an inordinate amount of time in the waiting room only to be ushered into what amounts to be a second waiting room. And so you're actually in two waiting rooms. I got left in a waiting room one time. Have that ever actually happened to you where the doctors just forgot you? That actually happened to me. One of my first experiences with a doctor in Hanford back in 1985, and um, it wasn't pleasant. And so now I, I, I have, I'm paranoid whenever I'm in the doctor's second waiting room 
that I've been forgotten. You know, you can hear them walk by. And then they go into another... Then you realize that you have to talk softly or everybody's going to know your business and stuff, you know. And then they walk by again and you try and calculate how many people were ahead of you. And invariably, because I'm paranoid now, I pop my head out and say, hey, have you? no, we haven't forgotten you. What do you think we are? As, as if that has never happened, you know. And so it's, it's a, I'm paranoid. I, I, I don't like, I love doctors. I hate going to the doctor. I'd rather go to the dentist. Actually, that's not true. I just thought I'd say that. But anyway, people generally don't like waiting. And they can get awfully surly when the wait seems to get too long. Folks who don't like Disneyland, I'm suspicious of them. But as their first explanation as to why, they always offer the lines are so long argument as if they don't stand in line at other things that they uh, desire to do. Christians can get spiritually surly waiting on God to do something in their situation. His seeming inaction is always compounded by knowing he can act on our behalf at any moment, even miraculously if need be. Now, chapter 6 of Exodus gets us a step closer to Moses' series of confrontations with Pharaoh. But we also get a look at what we might call the timeline. When we see it, I think we will have a better understanding of waiting. We may, in fact, not see ourselves as waiting at all in some of our situations. So verse 1 reads like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Four hundred years of increasing servitude. Why the delay getting to the promised land? Well, we've told you before, and we've pointed out from Genesis chapter 15, God gave Abraham and the Jews at least two reasons. One uh, reason for the four-century wait was to put the Israelites in a mindset to want to leave Egypt while simultaneously convincing the Egyptians to give the Israelites enormous wealth as they exited. Now, those two things in combination, not easy to achieve. If you were given that task and say, hey, I I not only need my people to leave willingly and wantingly, but they need to leave with great wealth. God says, well, I have a plan. I have a way of doing that. And that's what he worked out over those four centuries. Another reason was to give the pagans who were living in the promised land lots of opportunities to repent, which they rejected giving credibility to God, judging them and destroying them. All that was over now, and it was time to go. And so verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. God Almighty is El Shaddai. Lord, all capitalized, as you know, is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, online, some of the Jewish Christians pronounce it Yahweh, Yahweh. It's kind of, I can't even do it. It's so weird, but you know, they're, maybe that's the way. No one knows how to pronounce it. It's the, uh, the tetragrammaton. We talked about this several studies ago. But we need to pause and answer a possible contradiction. God seems to be saying that none of the patriarchs, indeed no one until Moses, had ever even heard the name Yahweh. The problem with that is that Yahweh occurs about 162 times in Genesis. We read that men began to call on the name of Yahweh as early as Genesis chapter 4. Furthermore, the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, he named the Lord will provide, which we say Jehovah Jireh, but it's Yahweh Yireh. 
uh, and then it comes to us as Jehovah Jireh. So it's, it's Yahweh. Moses' own mom, Jochebed, has a name that has Yahweh incorporated into it. The first part of her name is based on Yahweh. So after looking at a few of the suggested solutions, there is one that makes the most sense to my simple way of thinking and that happens to fit the context. So let me quote. This commentator says, The patriarchs had only the promises, not the things promised. The fullness of time had come when God was to be known in the fuller capacity and character of his name, Yahweh, as he fulfilled what he had promised and did what he had decreed. And so the patriarchs were told that he was Yahweh and that they would that there would be these promises, but they died having not received those promises, God having something better for the Israelites of this generation, they would actually go into the promised land. So Moses and the current generation would know God as Yahweh in a much fuller way than any previous Hebrew had. It would be like his name was fulfilled in them. And so verse 4, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. As we'll see, God is forwarding his plan to save mankind. It was formulated in eternity past, implemented when Adam and Eve sinned. At one point, it began to involve Abraham and his descendants. Everything along the spiritual timeline from the Garden of Eden until Moses was a forwarding of that one plan. The plan takes as long as it takes. Would be silly, for example, to think that Adam and Eve could step right out of Eden into the promised land. A lot had to happen first. And so where we look and see that there's all these delays and waiting and what's God doing, then you step back and think, well, no, this has to unfold. Because of the nature of the plan to redeem lost humanity, Adam and Eve have to step out of Eden, and they can't go right into the promised land. A lot has to intervene. And so God is pursuing this timeline. Now, here's the thing I'm going to keep emphasizing. Anywhere that a particular believer was along the timeline wasn't really a wait they were playing their part, fulfilling their role in furthering God's will. It was just the time in which they were born. It seemed like waiting, but it wasn't really waiting. It was just living and trusting God. And so verse 5, I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Their groaning was something God had told Abraham about. It didn't catch him by surprise. He wasn't off creating other universes, unaware of what was happening on the earth until they finally got his attention. Verse 6, <clears throat> Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. No less than seven times God said, I will, making these promises. Something else he said as he was making this incredible series of promises stands out. He said, then you shall know I am the Lord your God. There's a hint, and I think more than a hint, that the particular way God had designed to deliver the Israelites was necessary if they were to truly know him as their God. Here's what I mean. God could have delivered them any time in another way. For example, much later in Israel's history, they will be threatened by a vastly superior Assyrian army. 
God sends an angel into the Assyrian camp, killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Next morning, they decide it's time to retreat. And they go back to Nineveh, and Israel has peace for a while. God could have dispatched an angel or three to kill the Egyptians. But something about that solution or any other solution would leave the Israelites no better off spiritually. God's ways of answering our situations are often not what we would choose. But there is something about his solutions that are intended to leave us better off spiritually. We get frustrated. God, this is happening. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's not what I want to be happening. It's an illness. It's an injury. It's an affliction. There's something going on. I know that you're a God of miracles. You could deal with this right now. And God says, well... There's some things that are necessary for you to know that I'm the Lord your God. And you wouldn't be better off spiritually if I did that every time. You'd remain a baby and you wouldn't be able to handle things. And none of us wants to remain a baby. Nobody, nobody likes spoiled. Did you like spoiled children? I like to spoil children now that I'm a grandfather, but do you like spoiled children? Of course not. You see them in the stores, Costco especially. <laughs> Now, Moses is going to share his reluctance to be the deliverer in verses 9 through 13. But then, quite abruptly, his comments are interrupted by a genealogy of Aaron and Moses. And the chapter ends by returning to Moses' reluctance. I'm going to go through the genealogy, taking the verses out of order for the sake of keeping the theme flowing. So right now, drop to verse 14. And we're going to get some great names here for those of you who still uh, are thinking about baby names. Uh, there's some wonderful Hebrew names here, uh, and forgive me for some of the pronunciations. It'll sound like I know how to pronounce them, but I'm just making up most of this. Just realize that. Uh, but here we go. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, uh, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. Uh, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. Now Reuben and Simeon and Levi are sons 1, 2, and 3 to Jacob. After reporting them and their sons, the genealogy follows that of Levi to the parents of Aaron and Moses. And so verse 17, the sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. These are my favorite guys. It sounds like a, sounds like a Vegas act, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, Molly and Mushi. They come out and do some kind of magic act. These are the families of Levi according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of the life of Amram were 137. Moses had a big sister too, Miriam, but she's not mentioned in the genealogy. We get her name later in Exodus. Then verse 21, the sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzziel were Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, daughter, uh, sister of Nashon, his wife. 
And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. And these are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as his wife. She bore to him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites, according to their families. Now the Levites get more ink because they are going to be the priesthood and much of the later chapters of Exodus will introduce the system of worship that they will oversee at the tabernacle. Uh, Verse 26, these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. In other words, this is how we've come to this momentous juncture in history. Not just Israel's history, but in human history. Again, think it through. In order to arrive at Aaron and Moses, just at this exact moment, there had to be these specific ancestors living their daily lives. And so this whole section keeps hitting that same point that we're moving forward in the redeeming of the human race in the plan that was hatched in eternity past that began in the Garden of Eden. And here are some of the ways that we've gotten exactly to this point. Now, as they suffered in Egypt, did it seem like they were waiting for God who was doing nothing? I'm sure that it did. But in another sense, it wasn't waiting. They were living and trusting God. Verse 27. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. These are the guys. Everything in Israel's history, everything in history had been leading up to this moment. Now, someone else was and still is at work in history. The devil and his followers have been around from the beginning of mankind to try to derail God's timeline. The Rolling Stones know that. In sympathy for the devil, after listing various atrocities of history, they sing, just call me Lucifer. And so they understand that there is an evil force, an evil being in this universe. Uh, It's the devil, it's Satan, it's Lucifer, and he is contrary to the plan of God. The devil tried to ruin mankind in the Garden of Eden, tempting our first parents. They fell, but God was there immediately seeking them out, promising to come as the seed of the woman to defeat Satan's sin and death. The devil tried again as fallen angels came to earth and married and mated with human women, corrupting the gene pool by giving birth to weird offspring called Nephilim. God countered by sending the global flood, preserving eight souls to repopulate the earth. I don't mean this to be funny, but it sounds funny, but the devil must get really frustrated. you ever think of how frustrating it must be to be the devil? You get together with whoever you get together with. You've got your board, the devil board, and you say, hey, let's go into the Garden of Eden. I'll go into the Garden of Eden as a serpent, and I'll tempt Eve. She'll have Adam eat. We'll ruin this whole thing before it ever gets started. What could go wrong? And then it happens. And then who thought, who would have ever thought that God would take upon himself humanity and become human flesh and die for the sins of those people? That's something that the devil didn't see coming. And then he says, hey, I've got enough. Hey, guys, let's get together here. Let's, let's, let's rehuddle. Let's go down and mate with the human race and destroy the DNA and, and corrupt the gene pool totally so that this thing can't happen. What could go wrong? What? A flood? You're going to kill everybody and everything until there's only eight left to repopulate? And this is the devil's, you know, this is, this is his story. Trying to interfere 
in mighty ways, in amazing ways, and God countering to keep this timeline of redemption going. Every page of Genesis had led up to this moment in Egypt. God had successfully provided for his plan to save mankind. It was time to deliver the Israelites, to lead them to their promised land, so that their promised seed, the Savior, Jesus Christ, could be born in Bethlehem, die on the cross in Jerusalem, and save the world. In one sense, every generation waited But an argument could be made that they didn't wait for God, they waited with God as he provided for his plan. Now we are each individually and all collectively a part of that same plan. In fact, we know about the total plan in a way that these Old Testament guys and gals didn't. We know it from start to finish and our generation knows it better than any previous generation. First of all, obviously we have the completed word of God, the Bible. We can read all about how everything started and how it's going to end. I'd go so far as to say our generation knows more than any previous one because we see the fulfillment of so many of the last day's prophecies, especially regarding the nation of Israel. If you're reading the Bible before 1948, you know that the last days revolves around the nation of Israel being a nation again. And that didn't look like it was ever going to happen. And then all of a sudden, bam, whammo, 1948, May 14, in a day, that nation is reborn. And we live in that general time period, and we know a whole lot more about what's going to happen than any previous generation. We are definitely waiting with God, knowing ahead of time how things will play out. The resurrection and rapture of the church could occur any moment. Sometime soon after, the seven-year Great Tribulation is going to befall the left-behind inhabitants of the earth. At the end of those seven years, Jesus will return to earth with us in his second coming. He will rule over a kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. At the end of those thousand years, after one final rebellion of the devil and his followers, Jesus will judge non-believers from all human history. He'll consign them to eternal, eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. And then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where we will live in bliss for eternity. We know all that. This is the timeline that we're seeing ahead of us. Now, history is one thing. Your story and my story are another. I mean, if I'm a Jewish foreman of a brick-making crew and Pharaoh just ordered me to produce the same daily quota without providing the necessary straw and I'm getting beaten by cruel Egyptian taskmasters, a History Channel special on Israel's timeline isn't going to give me much comfort. Nevertheless, that's where the Israelites found themselves on the timeline. They were part of furthering God's plan. Now, we find ourselves in a pretty good place on the timeline here in the greatest country on earth, the United States of America. We've got it so much better than the vast majority of believers on this planet, not just today, but ever. Still, we live subject to disease and decay and death. Terrible tragedies befall our loved ones and us. If we focus on, let's say, some illness that we're enduring, it seems like we've been escorted into that second waiting room only to be left there forgotten by the great physician. And we tend to pop our heads out from time to time and say, God, you've forgotten us. But that's not really true. He has us playing our part in the unfolding drama of redemption. We may not know what it is, not completely, but if we have ever said... God works all things together for the good. We have to believe we are not waiting for him. We are waiting with him. 
If you believe Jesus when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, there's no second waiting room, there's only a chapel. And so when I think I'm in the second waiting room or in a waiting room at all, I'm really in a chapel with the Lord. And he and I are waiting together. It's still grievous. It's still an illness. It's still an injury. It's still a trauma. But the Lord is with us. He will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We can treat it, therefore, as a sanctuary. Now, do you find it odd when you ask God to wait? Back to verse 9. In his New Testament letter, James explains that the great prophet Elijah, he says, a man with a nature just like ours. These Bible guys and gals, they were just like us. If that's the case, then being reluctant to serve God when called upon is a trait we can sadly expect to discover in our own spiritual lives. I mean, if Moses was reluctant and Jeremiah was reluctant and Gideon was reluctant and Elijah was reluctant, then so will you and I be, maybe even more so. And so verse 9, so Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. They did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. The words used, taken literally, indicate shortness of breath. And it describes the inward pressure caused by deep anguish that prevents proper breathing. It's like children sobbing and gasping for their breath. Have you ever, you ever been there? Have you ever, you're just so anguished, so sad, so whatever. I've seen people that way. I can't remember too many times or any time right now in my own life, praise the Lord. But I've seen a lot of people over the years who, um, I mean, you wonder if you need to call an ambulance. They're in such grief. One I'm thinking of right now, the sobbing went on for, for 10 minutes straight. Uh, and this, the person could barely breathe because of the anguish of their heart at something that had just happened. And so that's what we're talking about. This is what's possible for you and I as believers, is, is that despite knowing the Lord, despite being filled with the Spirit of God, there are things in this life that are so discouraging and so much causing anguish uh, that we can feel like we are sobbing children that can't breathe. There are going to be times in your life when God's word seems to be silenced by the severity of what you're afflicted by. You'll be gasping for air spiritually and maybe literally. Take heart from Exodus. God's word would not be silenced, and ultimately those afflicted saw the mighty hand of God. God's word will win out. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. The message was simple and to the point. Now, it's got me thinking, we all really need to edit ourselves in the sense that we sometimes say more than we need to or we're unclear in what we do say. People like to joke about how long-winded preachers can be. Evangelist and seminary student Jeff Tartichuk argues that pastors should keep their sermons below 18 minutes. Don't react. He notes that the greatest sermon of all time... Jesus' Sermon on the Mount can be read aloud in 12 minutes and 30 seconds. Wow. Charles Spurgeon, called by some the prince of preachers, once said this, A man with a great deal of well-prepared matter will probably not exceed 40 minutes. When he has less to say, he'll go on for 50 minutes. And when he has absolutely nothing, he'll need an hour to say it. We've taken that to heart here. I, 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 it's, it's much easier to talk for an hour than it is to talk for 30 minutes. 
and, and to get your point across. And so work on editing yourself. In case you're wondering, our studies in Exodus averaged 37 minutes. I know it seems like a lot longer. Wednesday night, we're at 27 minutes. And so um, we're content-rich, trying not to repeat ourselves. It can be done. Verse 12, And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Physical circumcision was the sign an Israelite was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. We saw God almost kill Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, because Moses had disobeyed the covenant by never circumcising him. Zipporah, his wife, stepped up and performed the ritual, saving her son's life. The cutting away of the flesh illustrated seeking spiritual things rather than giving in to sins of the flesh. Uncircumcised was a term used by the Israelites to denote spiritual failure. For example, Jeremiah speaks of having an uncircumcised ear and an uncircumcised heart. He accuses the Jews. Your ears are uncircumcised. Your heart is uncircumcised. Moses says there's uncircumcised lips. The idea was that you haven't cut away the flesh, spiritually speaking. You're walking in the flesh, living in the flesh, sinning against God, and you need to repent. One more thing, at the burning bush, Moses had tried to excuse himself by claiming he was slow of speech. We said this was not a speech disability, but probably a reference to the reality that after 40 years in Midian, away from Egypt, his Egyptian was faltering. Now, if you realized that your lips or your ears or your heart were uncircumcised, the fix was to repent. So when Jeremiah says, you people have uncircumcised ears, they should repent and listen to the Lord. Or their heart, they should repent and walk with the Lord. Or if it's your lips, you should repent and speak for the Lord. By exclaiming that his lips were uncircumcised, I think Moses was saying that his words ultimately failed because God had not circumcised his mouth. I mean... You need somebody, he's not, he doesn't act like he can do it himself. He says, hey, I have uncircumcised lips. He doesn't get that he needs to repent from that. He's wondering why they're uncircumcised. I guess because nobody circumcised them, God, and that would be you. And so I don't want to pile more on Moses than we need to, but he's really trying hard throughout these last few chapters to get out of what God wants him to do. And, and I think this is another way of doing it. And it always amazes me the way believers blame God for their reluctance to serve Him and more so for their sin. I've told you this a million times, but people still use it, usually in broken marriages. And I say, well, what are you you doing? How can you justify this new relationship? And they say, well, God wants me to be happy. It's a universal truth. It's in 1 Fleshalonians chapter (laughs) 5. God wants me to be happy. The old Fleshalonians joke, I can only use it about once every three years, but it always gets a, gets a response. God wants me to be happy. There's no place in the Bible that says God wants you to be happy. There's, you can see where God wants you to be obedient and you can have joy, but not happy. And so the idea is I wasn't happy over here, probably because I was a knucklehead. Now I found this other new relationship. I'm in love. I'm happy. It's God's fault. I have an uncircumcised heart now, and that's God's problem because he allowed me to fall in love with this other person, so nanny, nanny. And then you say, well, look, here's what the Word of God says. And he goes, oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't really care about that. I know 
that I'm happy and stuff. And so it's blaming God. It never works in the long run. Verse 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God's word didn't change to accommodate Moses' reluctance. God's word doesn't change. In those things where it's clear, where it's black and white, to disagree with God is always sin. To blame him for it is even worse. And we, you know, when you're walking with the Lord, you can be thankful for this because you can get into a situation with people where you say, you're doing this, and it says right here, this is really bad. This is sin. In fact, people who do these things aren't going to go to heaven. And so maybe you need to repent, or maybe you need to get saved. And so, I mean, I, I love that part of, you know, not, not to beat people with it, but to be, do you ever, I mean, you probably have friends that are doing crazy things. They were, they're Christians, and now they're living some crazy way. And you think, wow, am, am I behind the times? And God would say, no, let's take a look at the word. What's black and white? This isn't even a gray area. This is clearly wrong. There are times when you are right and other people are wrong and vice versa. You know, we always try and find a, a compromise or a middle ground. You can't always do that in a situation. You can't look at people and say, I believe you and I believe you. Let's all get together. You can't be Switzerland all the time. Sometimes you have to say, all right, you're wrong. You know why you're wrong? Because this is what the Word of God says. And it's clear, and it rings like a bell. Skip to verse 28 now. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. You had one job as an expression used to call attention to perceived blunders made by individuals on the job. On the web, the phrase is heavily associated with fail images. You'll see a little meme that says you had one job and then a picture of something that's gone horribly wrong. One I saw the other day, it was, you know, how they stripe double yellow lines down the road and then they must have swerved for some reason because it just goes crazy, you know, and stuff. And it says you had one job. You had one job, Moses. It wasn't easy, but it was simple. Think about it. I mean, you had to go talk to Pharaoh, but... You were going to just repeat to Pharaoh what God said to you through Aaron. And so you just had to get into Pharaoh and then say, done. You had one job and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to back off. Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips and how shall Pharaoh heed me? And so Moses repeats himself and brings us back to the chronology of events after having given the genealogy that we looked at. Now, 40 years earlier, Moses had been in a big hurry to deliver the Israelites. Now he's totally reluctant to do so, making every excuse that he could. In effect, God is asking God to wait until he found someone more suitable. Now, how long did it take for God to bring Moses to this point where he said, go talk to Pharaoh? It took 80 years, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and then God says, you're ready, it's time right now. And Moses raises his hand, as it were, and says, I can keep running through excuses here, but I, I don't want to be the guy. And now I've tried it, and I don't want to be the guy. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to go back to being a shepherd. And, and essentially, if, you, if, if you're making a comparison, God had to wait 80 years to get Moses ready. So Moses is saying, you need to start over again with somebody else. How long might that take? 
How much suffering can a people take? And so he was asking God to wait. Now, I can't decide for you when you are being reluctant like Moses. I know that we all can be because we all have that nature. I will say that anytime we are prompted to serve the Lord but beg off because we don't think ourselves suitable, we're asking him to wait by finding someone else. It's not always, you know, I mean, it's disobedience, but it's not always from just a disobedient heart. A lot of times you and I think, oh, Lord, you can't be prompting me to do that because I'm not ready, I'm not suitable, I'm not the guy. Now, none of us is really suitable or ready because God isn't looking for, doesn't need our natural talents and abilities. Let's use education as an example. I'm going to give a disclaimer. I'm not against getting a higher education. You might even think I'm for it, seeing as I'm a graduate of the UC system. Please don't look at the UC system in a bad light because of that. I don't know how I got through, but I did. Uh, And we encourage Gino to get a college degree. And so we're not against education per se. However, as Christians, when we tend to trust in education, making it mandatory or thinking it necessary to serve God, then we're in grave error. One of my favorite all-time descriptions of what it means to be a Christian comes from a confrontation Jesus' first followers had with the over-educated leaders of the Jews after they refuted them. In Acts 4.13, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. The word uneducated there can mean ignorant. So they looked at these two fishermen. They said, these are ignorant, untrained men, but they are refuting everything we have to say, and there's a boldness about them that we can't deny. And somebody said, yeah, they've been with Jesus. And you know what? That's all you really need. You should learn and grow and study and, and fill your mind with the things of the Lord, but ultimately, you're, you're always ready when God taps you. When he taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I'd like you to step up and do this, whether it's something in the church, like a, you know, teach a Sunday school class or, or whatever it might be, or something you know, at your place of business out in the world, your mission field, whatever. When God taps you, then you're ready. I always think of the man who Jesus healed of blindness. And the, the religious leaders are upset. and They're peppering him with questions. He finally says, guys, I know one thing. Once I was blind, but now I can see. And that's all he knew. He didn't even really know who Jesus was. He didn't get born again like we you know, would today. He just was blind one minute and could see the next. And it was enough to just infuriate the religious leaders. If you've been a Christian for 10 seconds, I was dead, now I'm alive. I know enough to tell somebody else. Do I need to know the Bible? No. Should I learn the Bible? Yes. And so wherever you're at, if God is calling upon you to do something, then you do it. And you trust in Him so that people look at you and say, I marvel. You don't want people to look at you and say, wow, look at how wonderful... That education you received from that seminary, that really puts you in a class by... I mean, that's fantastic. Top of your class, can I see your card again, your degree and all that? You don't ever want anybody to marvel at what a smart person you are. Or how much education you have. You want them to look at you. I mean, it sounds funny, but you want them to look at you and say, Gene is the most ignorant, untrained person I can think of, but I still go to Calvary Chapel. What's that all about? Hopefully it's about the Lord. And I want to look at you and say, you ignorant, untrained individual. 
God wants to use you in the most profound way imaginable. And so you, we don't come to God with a pedigree or with um, credentials. You come to God with your credentials, you're going to be like the Apostle Paul who eventually said, everything I did before I became a Christian is a rubbish heap. God might use it from time to time, but it's a pile of garbage compared to what I have now. At least we should quit putting such high importance on things. More often than not, education gets in the way. Today, God might be asking you, why are you waiting? If he has set something before you, some task, then quit your reluctance and go for it. Not by your might or in your power, but by him. Go for it. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. This is a great question for you as well. And by Christian, I mean you've never really asked the Lord personally to save you. You haven't confessed your sins and repented of them and asked to be born again. You haven't had that experience. God would say this to you. Why are you waiting? Because we've told you what's going to happen in the world to come. We're, we're in a very uh, amazing place on God's timeline where the rapture could occur at any moment where the Christians around you, if you're not a Christian here today, could be gone in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and you would be left to enter into what eventually is going to be known as the Great Tribulation. You want to read something that will scare you, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, very few people are going to survive that. If you can't live for Jesus now, you're not going to be able to die for him then. And so if you're not a Christian, why are you waiting? Today is a day that you can come forward and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together.